Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and today we're entering Doriftopia because today's film is the 1990 fire-themed horror movie Spontaneous Combustion, directed by Toby Hooper. And I'm so excited about this one because this is one that... Uh, that I watched a long time ago, back when we were doing those uh, live stream, the trailer talk videos. And mm-hmm. uh, I don't remember what the context was. Were we talking about pyrokinesis movies or something? Did we end up watching Firestarter too? Uh, yeah, I don't I don't remember exactly how we happened upon it. Maybe we were celebrating Toby Hooper in general. I'm uh-huh. not sure. That might have been around the time that he had passed. Oh, yeah. But uh, but but yeah, it was it's it's fun to come back to this one. My my inspiration for this was I just I just got really excited about Brad Dorif pictures, and so I came to you and I said, hey, what what do you think we could do? Uh, graveyard shift. We could do uh-huh. Wise Blood. We could uh-huh. do Spontaneous Combustion. Uh, we ended up deciding on com- spontaneous combustion, but I watched all three this week anyway. Wow. Uh, so I'll I'll refer back to those since those are those are fresh on my mind. But yeah, I'm excited to to revisit this one and just to talk about Brad Dorif in general uh, because I think he's he's one of the more amazing weird actors uh, of uh, really of uh, that we have today that's still working today of certainly mm. of, of recent decades. I think I would I'd be tempted to compare him to Peter Lorre. Uh, and to a certain Ooh. extent, I mean, they're not, uh, you know, not, not a similar physical presence, but in terms of actors who were capable of creating a certain weird aura, were drawn to weird parts, and were able to really bring them alive on screen. But so you've watched all three of these movies in what the last like forty eight hours, so your your grail overfloweth with Dorif juice right now. Yeah, I was pretty lucky to have to take my automobile to the shop uh, two days in a row. And mm. uh, for whatever reason, the, the lounge there was just the perfect place to watch Brad Dorif movies as opposed to doing any kind of like rigorous research. <laughs> Instead of reading, uh, what kind of magazines they got in there? Uh, they don't have any magazines. It's, all, oh. it's, a, it's a brand new facility. So this is, it was like being in a, a brand new airport. Uh, it just had TV screens and snack machines and no magazines. <laughs> Well, that sounds like a barren waste. I'm glad you were able to bring Brad Dorif with you. Uh, but but we should also not ignore the fact that, once again, this is a film that was directed by Toby Hooper. Mm-hmm. And yet most people, probably even most horror fans, have never heard of this movie. Uh, and so this is actually one of my favorite kinds of movies to talk about. The bizarre, lesser-known works of somebody who is famous for other stuff. Yeah. Uh, now, I, I think it's undeniable that Toby Hooper was was one of the the most revered and influential horror filmmakers of all time. You know, you've got uh, he made the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which the influence of that movie on the generation of horror movies that followed really cannot be overstated. Uh, but he was also very versatile as a filmmaker. So he made that, but he also made Poltergeist. And it's really hard to think of two horror movies more different in style and tone than those two. But they were certainly very, very influential, and I feel like each one had its its impact generationally. You know, yeah. like uh, people older than me were were very much in the the blast zone of of the original TCM, whereas I I was just old enough to be in the blast zone of Poltergeist. Right. Uh, so so I was I was more scarred by Poltergeist and then came to appreciate the Texas Chainsaw Massacre at a later point. But it's funny because I think this movie combines elements of both. So Texas Chainsaw Massacre is 
shocking, brutal, disgusting. Uh, in terms of cinematography, it's very cold and detached. People often mm -hmm. compare its cinematography to documentary filmmaking, while Poltergeist is is almost in the Spielbergia zone. It's warm, familiar, lived in, almost kind of sentimental. Um, it has that that suburban, uh, you know, bikes on the sidewalks at dusk kind of uh, Spielberg thing going on. Yeah, Craig T. Nelson throwing his TV out on, right, <laughs> to the yeah. sidewalk. But so you've got those two movies, and then you've got Spontaneous Combustion, released in 1990. So this would have been eight years after Poltergeist, starring the wild-eyed jackrabbit virtuoso Brad Dourif as a man who cannot stop setting things on fire with his brain. Yeah, and uh, and we'll talk about about uh, Dorif at length uh, because I think one of the great things about this film is that it it does present something of a showcase for Brad Dorif. Mm -hmm. That's not to say that that this is a perfect film or that his character <laughs> arc is is perfectly structured, but you get to see a, a a fair amount of range from him in this. You get to see him play a sure. serious and relatable human being. You get to see him uh, dealing with just extreme outbursts of emotion, and by the end of the film, essentially becoming a movie monster as well. These are all things that he, he that he has done. Uh, you know, sometimes in isolation in other pictures, uh, but in this, yeah, he gets to do the whole thing. I think it might be good to introduce this one, if you're cool with this, by reading a short review of the movie from film critic Ty Burr in Spin in 1990. Go for it. Okay, Burr writes, quote, No one makes bad movies as deliriously entertaining as Toby Hooper, whose career continues at spectacular downhill slide with spontaneous <laughs> combustion. The man who reached a genre peak with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and a commercial peak with Poltergeist now offers this completely incoherent tale of David Bell, twitchingly played by Brad Dourif, the son of a couple subjected to radiation experiments in the 50s. Apparently, the tests lower the human body's immunity to perfectly natural spontaneous combustion, or in the words of the German scientist with an eye patch, the human body is the most complex electrically sparked combustion engine we know of. Uh, and that is a quote directly from the film. I checked. Mm -hmm. Burr continues, that means that whenever things get tense, Brad spouts flames from his elbow. He can also make enemies burn up over the phone. Spontaneous combustion is a lot of fun. It's got far too many subplots, a nice sense of paranoia, effects that are both icky and ridiculous, and it moves too fast for logic. Beat that, Troma. <laughs> so I gotta say, I think, I think Burr's kind of dead on here. Um, this I don't know, he manages to... I, I agree with him completely, and I also disagree with him on this. Okay. Um, so I'll cut Ty some slack because he's he's not the kind of critic who is you know just about the art films. I, I looked I looked into like well, what he admires, and he mm -hmm. does list Reanimator uh, as uh, as one of his favorite films. Quote one of the secret best films of the 1980s. So I can't I can't argue with that. Like he he mm -hmm. does have an appreciation for the weird, but um, I mean on one hand, as I've said before, I, f I feel like. We've, we've kind of reached the point where I think we have to rethink what we mean when we say bad movie. Um, mm -hmm. And then and then also I, I've seen this this critique a few different times that's that spontaneous combustion doesn't make any sense, um, you know, or that it's you know, completely illogical. I don't think that's the case at all. I, I, I think it has. Oh, OK. Maybe you can explain very, it to me. <laughs> oh, well, I can explain the first. I can explain aspects of it. It's just not completely okay. confusing. It has a uh -huh. kind of a train wreck of a of a of a third act, but um yeah. You know, um I don't know. Maybe part of it is I'm used to watching films that are 
I don't know, logically challenged. And uh-huh. I know that I need to bring my own logic into it. I need to help unravel it a bit. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's basically one of these stories of, um, of, a, of an individual looking at his own, his own past, his own upbringing, and then on, on, you know, revealing the conspiracy of it all. And, and mm-hmm. it, we'll get into, into what all that means in the plot of this, this film, but yeah, I don't think it's completely, uh, illogical, um, or nor incoherent. I mean, it, it's it's got its problems, but okay. uh, but complete incoherency is is not one of them. Okay, well I'm ready to hear you preach its virtues. I have an open heart and an open mind. Uh, <laughs> and by the way, no, I mean I'm with Burr on the fact that this movie. I mean, I think in some conventional senses, my reaction was, well, yeah, this is a bad movie, and that it has some uh, elements of the plot just don't really gel together, and it feels like multiple different movies mm-hmm. sort of crammed together as one, and it doesn't really embrace any of the directions fully. And I think there was a strange mismatch in t- just in terms of the raw sort of mechanics of filmmaking. Like, in some ways, this movie uh, has some, like, really good and effective set pieces and, and special effects, and in other cases, it looks really cheap, like daytime TV kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I guess here's my criteria for for truly bad film in, in the in the sense that it is bad, and we're not just saying, "Oh, I love bad movies." Is can I drive it off the lot? Does it does it function enough? Is there something uh-huh. that is that okay. is actually going to bring this baby to a stop? Um, and you know, like for an example, that would be something like like Trouble in Mind, which is a film I watched in, in recent months, and it has so many wonderful aspects of it, mm-hmm. uh, to it, uh, some some great performances in it, some great style, some great music, but it has what was for me as a viewer like a a real tragic flaw in in the establishment of one of its characters and his motivations mm-hmm. that just left me unable to drive this picture off the lot, you know? Oh, this uh, one's easy to drive. I mean, this one will drive for you. This is a self-driving car. Yeah, if, so I, I guess that's how I, te- I tend to look at things. Um, likewise, there's some there's some perfectly fine cinematic automobiles out there, and, uh, you know, they're, they have all the parts, but they're just, they have no momentum for me. I can't drive mm-hmm. them off the lot. So uh, that's, that's where I fall in the matter. Fair enough. Now, um, uh, it, 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 to be fair, though, when it comes to criticism of this picture, uh, its critics do include Brad Dorif himself, um, and, <laughs> yep. and I and I, I like the way he he looked at it. Sometimes it's I think a little uh, it, it can be a little more authentic, I guess, to you know to, to look at from the inside out, you know. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, Dorif apparently wasn't pleased with the final results. He spoke about it in a 1990 edition of Fangoria. Uh, there's an interview in that. Uh, He's cited on the IMDb page, but we looked up the, the full interview as well, which uh, can uh-huh. be found at archive.org. Uh, but but I, I want to read what he had to say. He says, quote, You see me playing my heart out in scenes that are not working, and the reason they're not working is that movie doesn't make sense. Okay, so so he he would agree that it does make sense. I, I, I disagree. I think it makes a certain amount of sense. Okay. He says, it's almost funny. As a matter of fact, the better my acting was in some of the later scenes, the funnier the film was. I found uh-huh. myself at the mercy of people who didn't know what they were doing. I probably shouldn't be saying this, but my feeling is the producers destroyed it. Toby could have made three different movies with the material he had, and each one would have worked. But by the time he got it, it had changed from a love story to a suspense thriller about my character's paranoid fantasy to a guy goes crazy film about this insane killer who becomes a destructive force that's going to wipe out mankind. We went back and kind 
kind of restructured it as a love story, but it didn't really help. The beginning of the film was great, and a certain portion of my stuff was fine, but then it became stupid when all the flame stuff started happening. <laughs> when all the flame stuff. But, uh, so I, I think he's too hard on, him, on himself, certainly. Uh, I, I, think, I think Brad Dorff is great in parts of this film. Oh, yeah. Uh, and and res- is able to to do far more with this part and tries far harder with this part than a lot of other actors would have been capable of. Um, but, but he's also, he's also right. The beginning is, is really, really good. And I wonder what it might've looked like had they actually had a coherent vision for the picture, if they had like stuck to the love story aspect, you know? Well, to whatever extent there's anything wrong with spontaneous combustion, it is not Brad Dourif. So I, I, I don't think anybody would say <laughs> that the problem with this movie is that Brad is not up to par. Right. Like my, my elevator pitch for this is it's a conspiracy movie. It's a love story. It's a rage flick. It's it's all over the place. And it has these extreme pivots. And some, Brad Dorff is able to keep the car on the road at those pivots, uh-huh. at those uh, those extreme, uh, um, you know, turns uh, to an amazing degree. Uh, there's a towards the end. It, it it's it's very difficult. I think he probably you know he he does as well as he can. But uh, but yeah, the, the the plot really veers in the final act of this film. Can I give my uh, alternate elevator pitch? Okay, go for it. It's the Incredible Hulk, except instead of green muscles, it's just fire. Yeah, I think that's good. And you know what? I think this is the the concept here is ultimately better than. The Incredible Hulk, because mm-hmm. with with Hulk, his rage is both his, a curse and a, and, a, and a superpower. It's literally the way he defeats his enemies. Right. And I think one of the things that does work in this film is that you have you do have some really terrifying pyrotechnic uh, uh, effects uh, yeah. with, with fire shooting out of people and being digitally uh, placed over people. And then you have Dorf's performance, which is, uh, as, as he often is in, in films, just very explosive and emotional. Mm-hmm. And so there is the c- combined, there is this element of just, um, you know, extreme uh, emotional outburst um, in, in a way that is that is uncontrollable, that is, that is not beneficial, that cannot be utilized, that can't be claimed as a positive attribute of, of himself or controlled by other people. And, um, and I don't know, there's something about that that feels more authentic. You know, it's like, this is the uh, extreme emotion as, as a pure detriment, as opposed to something that, um, you know, is bad, but also is the way you defeat the enemy. Like the, 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 there is no defeating the adversary using this superpower. Well, yeah, I agree with you in spirit, in the but he does in fact use his his uh, pyrokinesis to defeat the villains at the end of the movie. Well, but not but in a way that is. It um, doesn't feel meaningful. I mean, yeah, it feels- it, not in a way that feels meaningful, and not in a way that um, that really redeems his character. No, or, he just, uh, or it saves destroys the day. him and everyone around him. Yeah, should we hit some trailer audio? Yeah, let's hear the trailer. Toby Hooper, the director of Poltergeist. Toby Hooper, the modern master of the macabre, now brings you his greatest achievement. In the spring of 1955. Okay, Brian, Peggy, very soon. Ready now, ready. A secret experiment began. An experiment. That left one survivor. The vital signs are all perfect. There's no signs of radiation. 
now, the child has become a man. Well, once like you lived, you have a slight fever. A man who doesn't know the secret of his past. Spontaneous Combustion, starring Academy Award nominee Brad Dorif, Melinda Dillon, and Cynthia Bain. Spontaneous Combustion. Wait, I actually haven't listened to this thing. Does it have a good narrator voice? Uh, I think it has a pretty good narrator voice, yeah. Yeah. In a world where a man can call you on the phone and make fire come out of your nose. <laughs> it does have some pretty good phone sequences. Uh, yeah. right, right up there with uh, which Freddy movie had the, the phone in it? Uh, the Freddy it phone. The first movie, I think a tongue comes out of the phone. Oh, okay. That was the, the original original nightmare then. Okay. Uh, but it also, this movie has a few things in common with Scanners. You know, in Scanners, mm. when uh, there's the part where he calls the computer on the telephone and then reads the computer's mind. Oh, that. yeah. I mean, that's that's <laughs> something we have to keep in mind with, with psychic pictures is that, yeah, we, we often hold Scanners up as a as a great example. But I always, always had a problem with, with that. Like, oh, why is his mind working on the computer? Why is he able to psychically do computer things? But at any uh, rate. Yeah, I agree. I mean, Scanners is great, but it also has parts that do not make any sense. <laughs> All right, well, let's talk about the people involved in this. So we'll get back to Dorf in a second. But first, let's just uh, briefly discuss Toby Hooper one more time. Director, screenwriter on this. He lived 1943 through 2017. And, uh, yeah, he's probably best remembered for 1974 as the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, you often see this argument that his subsequent work, like, never achieved that level, that even though even Poltergeist being a commercial hit was, like, was part of a, an artistic descent. But, uh, you know, he, he, he worked a lot. He did a lot mm-hmm. of TV and film projects, and I think the quality is maybe up and down. I think that's fair to say. But he put out stuff like... Uh, uh, in addition to Poltergeist and TCM, he did Life Force, Invaders from Mars, um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Which I would argue is pretty close to pure genius. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is a disgusting horror comedy. It's almost a mm-hmm. satirical reimagining of the first movie, kind of in the way that um, if you've ever seen uh, Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2, you know, there's a similar mm-hmm. re- relationship with Texas Chainsaw and Texas Chainsaw 2. Yeah, I mean, I I ultimately think TCM too was was a great direction. He seemed on some level to to, to realize, okay, we we can't just reproduce what we did before. Mm-hmm. We need to lean more into the the, the grim gallows uh, humor aspects of the first film and create something uh, that takes on ultimately a, a more comedic um, air. Uh, so yeah, T- TCM is a lot of fun. That's one we could come back to on the show because it's certainly weird. Now, um, the co-screenwriter on this was Howard Goldberg, uh, born in 1948. Not a ton of film writing credits. He'd written Apple Pie in 1975 in a series of, uh, this is kind of a series of vignettes, I'm to understand, with kind of a secret life of Walter Mitty kind of vibe. Hmm. Um, He wrote and directed it, and I was looking at the people involved in it, and I did notice that Brother Theodore was in it. Oh, really? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) All your gods are dead and the rats are screaming. Yeah. So I don't know if that comes by just virtue of it being like a New York picture of that day, or if you were filming out in the open in New York, Brother Theodore would just appear and start screaming. I'm not sure which. Nice. 
He went on to write and direct two more films, uh, Eden in 1996 and Jake Squared in 2013. And Eden was part of a Sundance Institute fellowship. Uh, so uh, Goldberg's done uh, quite a bit of work, some commercial work, but also uh, off-Broadway musicals. So this, uh, you know, he, he, he did a lot more, but this seems to be his only foray into paranormal thriller screenwriting. Okay, but I think we need to get to the main attraction here. What's the reason to watch Spontaneous Combustion? It's Brad Dorif, baby. Yeah, Brad Dorif, born 1950, still still very active. It seems like a, a guy who who works a lot. I don't know mm. if it's too much. That's that's not for me to judge. Uh, <laughs> uh, but but he works a lot. He's been in a lot of projects over the years. Um, and he is he is openly. I've seen him describe himself in interviews as an odd duck, who often gravitates to disturbed and strange characters. Uh, and, and to a certain extent, is also you know he, he's been so successful in certain roles that people keep coming back and offering them, him those parts too. Uh, but uh, he's able to bring these weird characters to life in an amazing way. So he's been in, he's been in great films and TV products. He's been in heavily, he's been in heavily flawed films. Uh, he's been, certainly been in worse films than this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll find him in independent and international motion pictures. You'll find him in major blockbusters. You'll find him in various horror and sci-fi films of just about every caliber. Did you realize that this came out the same year as The Exorcist 3? Um, I think I didn't realize it until I was reading that Fangoria interview, uh-huh. because I think that was to promote Exorcist, and then they also asked him about this picture. Oh, oh okay, yeah. I didn't put yeah, that together, Yeah, that he plays right. the Gemini killer. Right, and he's captivating in, in mm-hmm. Exorcist 3. Exorcist 3 is a movie that... Um, you might just assume, if you haven't seen it, well, it's the third sequel to a movie that did not need a sequel at all. How could it be good? But actually, I mean, I haven't seen it in several years, but I remember The Exorcist 3 actually being quite good. Yeah, I think if I was to rewatch an Exorcist film, it would be 3. I think, I, I think I've, I've, I've done Exorcist Part 1 enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would probably come back for 3. But yeah, Dorif is great in it and is captivating. I would say that the, he is often one of, if not the most captivating things about any picture he's in, you Uh know? I mean, sometimes he's in there with a lot of of talented and or weird actors that are, you know, competing for that that honor. But there are numerous examples that come to mind where it's like, oh, yeah, Brad Dorff's in it. He will make you he will make you remember his part if you forget everything else. I for the past couple of days I just haven't been able to think about anything really except Brad Dourif leaving the set of Lord of the Rings in character as Grima Wormtongue to get lunch at Subway or something. Right? <laughs> so he's he's going into the Starbucks and and they're writing Wormtongue on the cup and oh man did did they do that Did they have to go to Starbucks and no and I don't know I mean okay. that'd be oh I guess they probably had catering at the on the set so that really ruins my fantasy here no no i think the fantasy is still good if if it's like uh-huh. worm tongue going to catering it's still still pretty good or craft yeah. services oh did they have to address him as like oh would you like another you know chicken leg mr worm tongue <laughs> <laughs> it would have been cool if uh if if they if they made sure that they had middle earth appropriate um craft services for everybody so if you wanted to stay in character you could you know you're not gonna have mac and cheese you're gonna have you know, traditional pies. shire fare yeah. yeah i don't know wait a minute worm tongue would he eat savory pies that seems too uh warm and comforting to him yeah it would be well i think eel would be seems like something. i don't yes. know if they were you know i i it's been a while i don't remember what they were eating in uh was it gondor well, no, Wormtongue was the advisor to King Theoden at Edoras mm-hmm. of the, the, the Horse Lords of Rohan. Ah, uh, okay. They were eating, like, 
horse cheese and stuff. Probably, horse right? cheese is that yeah. what? Really? Maybe I don't know. I don't remember what they were eating in, in that that book. It's been a long time since I've read the Two Towers, but every uh, single meal surfeit of lampreys. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's 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 talk about uh, Brad Dorif. Uh, so he, what does he look like? He tends to have this rather gaunt look. Mm-hmm. Um, often a kind of boyish quality about him, especially for, I mean, for really for the most of his career, he, he, able, he retained this kind of um, unnatural, youthful, um, but also kind of sickly power at times. Um, and he, uh, he, his eyes are, are generally very earnest and intense, uh, but but I don't want to limit it to just his eyes because he, he tends to really embody a character when he plays it. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's like a full body possession. Mm-hmm. And his natural voice is this kind of soft-spoken um, uh, voice with a kind of a slight West Virginian accent to it. Uh, but uh, but he's capable of taking on other uh, other accents as well, and can really also ramp it up. Uh, he can he has a he has a lot of range in terms of his um, his vocal performance. Totally. Uh, there was a fun bio published in the Independent back in uh, 2002 titled "Brad Dorif: How Weird Is Brad," <laughs> uh, which is a wonderful. Uh-huh. Wonderful name. Uh, and it includes this wonderful quote. He says, uh, quote, give me a camera and a paycheck and I'm there. You start out reading the script and you say, I don't know. Then as you're making it, you think, no, this is really cool. I was wrong. <laughs> then you see the movie and you're like, oh, forget it. You were totally right at the start. <laughs> this is a man after our own hearts. Yeah. And, but I think it's also reve- revealing. Like he seems to like when he when you're in the part, you're in the mm-hmm. part, you know, and. Uh, it's it's a different situation than the finished piece, and ultimately, like you're the actor, you don't have control over that. All you have control over uh, is your own performance and your own interactions. I think this is actually key to what makes him such a great actor, and especially a lot of these sort of maybe lower grade genre movies. Like you never get the sense like he feels he's too good for a part. Uh, right. Even if the movie ends up being bad or heavily flawed in some way, even if the scenes he's acting out are ridiculous, he's committed. He's there. He's in character, and you don't. Feel, he's not too cool to play the guy whose like elbows are on fire and who's calling into a radio show with like a psychic psychiatrist to make the uh, the the mm-hmm. call screener erupt in flames. Yeah, yeah, totally. So he has, I think, uh, 173 credits on IMDb right now, and he's, again, been just acting for decades. I'm mm-hmm. not going to list all of his credits here, but I thought I might roll through some standouts, and we can talk a little bit about some of them as the spirit hits us. Mm-hmm. So he was in 1975's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. All right, he was uh, Billy in that one. Mm-hmm. Yep, yeah. great, great ensemble cast in, in that, that picture for sure. Uh, he in 1979 he was in Wise Blood playing the character Hazel Motes, uh, which we were just talking about. I've never seen this one, but uh, I've I've heard that it's great. So it's based on the Flannery O'Connor novel, and it was directed by John Huston, wasn't it? Yep, directed by John Huston, and uh, yeah, it's. I just finished watching it this morning. It's it's weird, dark, unpleasant. Occasionally, occasionally funny. Uh, it has some comedic scenes, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, Dorif has just that great intensity in this. Coupled with this, you know, again, he's very young, and I think he's twenty nine, and you know, he looks even younger. Um, but he's a yeah, he's a real live wire in this. And on on top of that, you also have he has scenes with Harry Dean Stanton, uh, numerous scenes with Amy Wright, who's wonderful in it. Ned Beatty, William Hickey <laughs> shows up, um, mm-hmm. a younger William Hickey than I'm I'm used to seeing. But but not youthful. I don't know if a youthful William Hickey actually uh, ever existed. That defies physics. 
yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's a Wise Blood is 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 certainly a Brad Dorf picture that's often held up as a as a truly great film, like a uh, not like a genre film where you have a cool performance in it, but a but a really solid motion picture. Uh, and 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 I would agree with that, with one caveat, and that is that the music is occasionally really distracting. It has this. Uh, this kind of wacky semi-electric hayseed music playing at times, <laughs> yeah. But only in the comedic sections, not in the uh, generally not in the dialogue-driven interactions. Oh, okay. Now, wait a minute. Before we we, we can't forget to mention Dune, right? The yeah. the David Lynch Dune, the one with the pug. Yeah, that's right. He plays uh, the twisted mentat uh, Peter Devries. Let's see, what is it? Devries? Devries? I can't remember how. Devries. It is. I think it's maybe Peter Devries, but it it. Looks like his name is spelled like Piter. P i t e r. Yeah, yeah. So he has the big bushy eyebrows, like all the Mintats in the the Lynch version uh, vision of Dune. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. He's 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 fun, and it's not a huge part. He doesn't last that long. And of course, he is surrounded by so much weirdness and so many uh, charismatic actors in that picture. Um, you know, th- there's a lot to look at in Dune, even if that picture is ultimately flawed as well. I don't know what flaws you're talking about. David Lynch's <laughs> Dune is a perfect film. 10 out of 10. <laughs> the it's, pacing is incredible. Yeah, perfect. Um, <laughs> uh, so let's see. Uh, 1986, he was in Blue Velvet. Um, we have to mention, of course, he was in almost all of the Child's Play movies. I mean, he is the voice of Chucky. Um, oh, is he even in the weird recent ones? They did. Um, no, that's, I think, um, Mark Hamill jumped in to do that oh. one. But huh, he's funny. been in everything else and there's like an upcoming sci-fi series uh of child's play and he's back in that brad dorf is back in that so have they gotten into time travel in that when the time chucky i don't think so i don't think he's gone to space either okay holding out for the old west chucky <laughs> now that that could be good yeah. uh let's see um we already mentioned the exorcist 3 in 1990 but also in 1990 graveyard shift wait 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 wait. so, so wait exorcist 3 Spontaneous combustion and graveyard shift all in the same year. Yes, it would seem he's, so. <laughs> he's working. He's <laughs> he's getting yeah. work. So, uh, graveyard shift, which is based on a Stephen King short story, really a terrific short story. Um, I I watched I rewatched this this week as well. Mm-hmm. It's basically a giant mutant rat picture. Uh-huh. Is um, it a, is it a rat or a bat? What? It's been so long, but I, this was one of those I think I watched late at night on TNT when I was way too young to do that. And uh, did it have wings in the end or something? Yeah, it's like basically all the gross rodent-type things you that fill your nightmares have uh-huh. like bred with each other in the darkness beneath the mill. And oh, cool. the result are these, is this, this big grotesque monstrosity that has elements of all the creatures. Okay. And, um, and I think it was... I can't. I don't recall offhand. I think it was more than just one creature uh, in the story, but in this, it's like one big creature, and it has a lot of rats working for it. But um, it's a. Uh, it's pretty fun. It's a. You know, it's a monster flick. It has um, Stephen um, mocked in it, who uh, is 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 pretty good in it. He was in Trancers three through five as well. Uh, it also has Andrew Divoff, who is in Wishmaster, and I've seen Stephen King dismiss it as an exploitation flick, but I I feel like that's kind of the perfect <laughs> zone for a giant monster rat movie. I mean, what are yeah. you, what are you looking for? I wanted more character nuance in my giant rat movie. Yeah, 
But performance-wise, Dorif is the most memorable thing. He has this. His character is really not that important. He basically is just a weird character that comes mm. along to, I think, take up space in the movie and have some interactions with our main characters. But he plays a Vietnam vet who's also an exterminator who's quick to tell you that he's not some burnout like a character Bruce Dern would play, uh, which uh, uh-huh. is amazing. But yeah, he's he's just um, he's like chewing and spitting tobacco and um, is just in ranting. Uh, and and killing rats. He's he's a lot of fun in that. Yep, sounds like that would work better as a 1970s style character study starring John Cazale. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, Dorif was in Jungle Fever in 1991. Critters Four in 1992. Um, he was in that excellent episode of Tales from the Crypt with Bill Paxton. Uh, people who live in brass hearses. I don't know this one. I'm sorry. He was on. He was on the X Files. Now you can speak to this. He was in an episode called Beyond the Sea. Do you remember this? Oh yeah, Beyond the Sea. Which one was this? Okay, I just looked it up. This one was in the first season, uh, huh. though. I honestly I don't recall this one. Maybe maybe if I saw a part of it. Uh, man, it's got a it's got a big Wikipedia page. It looks like this may have <laughs> been an important episode. Oh, I think this this one had some like uh, character development where you learn about Mulder and Scully's backstories. Ah, uh, okay. All right, he was in Death Machine in 1994. He was in Alien Resurrection in 97. I like the way you just paused on this one. Like you're <laughs> you're waiting for me to. Okay, Alien Resurrection. I have to admit is a, a movie that I don't just hate, but it like literally makes me feel sick to think about. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. Just the concept of Alien Resurrection summons a kind of like winding mountain road backseat car sickness uh, miasma <laughs> to come over my brain. I- I'm literally not joking. It is packed with weird actors. You have to give it that. It, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, Ron Perlman, right? Yeah. Ron Perlman. Um, uh, who, Michael Wincott. Um, Dan Hedaya. It's a, it's got a, it's, it has a fun cast. Um, okay, let's let's move on though. Okay, uh, the prophecy three, the ascent. Didn't see that one in two thousand. No. But then, of course, the Lord of the Rings, the two towers in two thousand and two. Right. Yeah. There you go. He was on Deadwood, a memorable role there. Uh, he's worked with uh, Werner Herzog several times, including uh, My Son, My Son, What Have You Done from two thousand and nine. I haven't seen that one, but this started to make me wonder. Is there any overlap with, with Kinski here? Does Dourif almost have some, some very slight notes of Kinskyberry about him? Um, I mean, certainly insofar as Herzog worked with him on se- uh, several times, and he does have that kind of natural intensity, but uh-huh. I, I don't think it's fair to compare anybody to, to Klaus Kinski. Um, no, for, I'm, I'm for not— numerous su- reasons. No, no, no. For, I'm not suggesting a moral comparison <laughs> or that— or that Brad Dourif would have been known for, you know, bellowing freakouts about the catering or something. <laughs> Coming back to the catering once again. <laughs> but, but at any rate, uh, yeah, well, I guess I'll, I'll stop the, the expansive list at this point. But basically, he's worked with a number of, of, of great actors and great directors. Uh, uh, and, uh, and and seems to continue to do so. Interestingly enough, the actor Fiona Dourif is his daughter. And she seems to be carrying on the tradition of playing both weird and serious roles. Um, she's been in uh, The Stand. She played, a, 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 I'm to understand, kind of a, a strange character in that. Uh, she was in Tenet. And uh, she's also a part of the Chucky franchise now. So that's kind of cool, keeping it in the family. Although I'm trying to look up who she was in Tenet. Have I haven't seen, seen Tenet. But... I have not seen it yet. Oh, Tenet. Um, okay, I don't recall which character she played. But uh, Tenet, it's one of those movies I know I've talked about 
ones like this on the show before that are almost everything that comes to mind to say about it is a criticism. And yet I really <laughs> enjoyed it. It was, uh, it, it's, it's very fun. It has that great Christopher Nolan action style. Just like each set piece is enormously enjoyable in a tactile sense. But, uh, I think you could lever some quite legitimate criticisms against the coherence of the plot to revisit a theme from mm. earlier. Okay. Well, I'll probably get to it at some point. Uh, next mm-hmm. time I'm in the mood for a cerebral yet incoherent time travel adventure. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> now, uh, Brad Dorif is not the only actor in this picture. Uh, there are some other people of note. Uh, <laughs> what if he was, though? <laughs> well, uh, that would be something. Um, I mean, he, I think... There's a, at least one Werner Herzog picture where he's the only actor, uh, oh, okay. if I'm remembering correctly. It's more, it's not a traditional uh, narrative type thing, but uh, he can go it alone. Okay, but who else is it? One thing I got to say before we get into the cast is this movie has way too many generals in it. <laughs> this is overloaded with these like old men standing around, you know, scheming about whatever this this conspiracy is. Yeah, it's hard to keep track of, of who the villain is and uh-huh. who the sub-villain is. Yeah. Like ultimately, especially if it's like a conspiracy mad science yarn, you need that mad scientist. Like you need your central villain. And this this film is it, you can get lost trying to figure out who that is supposed to be. I agree. I think that could have been one way to significantly improve this film just to lock down who is the villain. Have yeah. Like one central villain uh, who maybe has a, a recognizable henchman instead of this sort of uh, gaggle of skunk works dudes who are you know, showing up in various points and you're trying to remember, is that the guy from earlier or is that somebody different? Yeah, yeah. And and I guess the, the counter argument would be, well, it's supposed to be about paranoia and conspiracy and that involves, you know, it involves everyone in your life. Uh, but yeah, I, I still think it would have, it would have been a smoother ride had we had it focused more on a single villain. Uh, but at any rate, the first person uh, of note is the the love interest. Uh, uh, the character is Lisa Wilcock, Sam's new girlfriend. Sam is... Um, is Brad Dorff's character, played mm-hmm. by Cynthia Bain, who was born in 1963. Uh, she played Tracy in 1988's Pumpkinhead, oh, and yeah. she did a lot of TV work as well. Pumpkinhead, that's a movie with a, uh, a, a creature that deserves a better movie to live in. Uh, <laughs> ultimately, it's not a great film, but a really beautiful monster design. Oh, yeah, a beautiful monster. Um, now, uh, Cynthia Bain, it, it's interesting. She uh, eventually transitioned into, uh, into being an acting coach, and she runs Cynthia Bain's Young Actor Studio in Studio City, California. Uh, so, yeah, it seems to be her, her whole thing eventually became helping young actors uh, improve their craft. Hmm, cool. All right. Um, the first of the, the many villains in this, um, uh-huh. we have the character Dr. John Marsh, played by John Cipher, born right. 1932. Uh, veteran actor... I'd say the most the, the the role that I knew him from previously was he played Man at Arms in the 1987 Masters of the Universe movie. Had a mustache in that. Do you remember him? Yes, yes, yes. I do remember him. He, I, you know what? I was comparing him a little bit to Leslie Nielsen while I was watching this. He has mm-hmm. notes of of Nielsenberry. He does. He does because, um, yeah, Leslie Nielsen. Um, especially if you think of Leslie Nielsen pre-Naked Gun, like pre-Police uh-huh. Squad, uh, he had that that very serious tone that was uh, maybe a little a little too dry, and that's why it ultimately lent itself so well to parody. Right. 
All right, we have uh, D. Young playing Rachel, Sam's ex-wife, born 1955, multiple Star Trek roles, a lot of TV work, played Dr. Irene Shulman on Melrose Place, if that means uh, anything to anybody. Uh, hmm. But she was also she also had small parts in Spaceballs and The Running Man. Now, this next guy, I was trying to remember what it was I recognized him from, and I couldn't figure it out, unless I was just recognizing him from the last time I watched this movie. Yeah, William Prince, who plays Lou Orlander, the father figure and his ex-wife's grandfather. The, the, the connections <laughs> between the characters of, yeah. gets a little uh, weird at times. Anyway, he lived 1913 through 1996. Uh, he's our shadowy conspiracy villain. I think he's supposed to be the, the top villain. Uh, uh-huh. But it takes us a while to get to that revelation. Uh, he was a character actor with roles on The Stepford Wives, Network, a lot of TV across the decade. I think one of the things that was – I was getting the same uh, – having the same lights come on for me. I'm like, what if I seen this guy in? And I don't think I had really seen him in anything else or remembered him from anything else. But he kind of has similar notes to William Hickey. He's like okay, okay. William Hickey light. Notes of Hickeyberry. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, I've seen Network, so I might have seen him in that. But I don't yeah, I just don't remember him from yeah. Network. Um, you know, there are other other stars burn a lot brighter in Network. Right. So one of the funny things, though, about William Prince's character in this movie is that uh, there's no there like no is no question at all when you first meet him whether he's going to end up being the villain of the film because when you first meet him they won't let you see his face he's mm. like he could be a dick tracy villain called shadow face he's just sitting in a room where every other actor is fully lit and perfectly visible but he's covered in a complete shroud of darkness which looked extremely funny to me <laughs> All right. Um, another character, and this is another scientist character, uh, is Nina, the German scientist uh, played by Melinda Dillon, born 1939, probably most famous and visible as Ralphie's mom from the 1983 film A Christmas Story. Yep. Interesting casting decision. Yeah. But she also had memorable roles in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Magnolia, and of course, Harry and the Hendersons. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a general character show up uh, Another early general. on. Yeah. <laughs> this is uh, played by Dale Dye, who was born in 1944. Um, he's he, basically your gray-haired mustachioed general in this. Uh, in real life, a former Marine. So he played a lot of characters like this. Anytime you need like a stiff military authority figure, uh, you would often, often turn to Dale Dye. He was in Platoon, Band of Brothers, born on the 4th of July. Um and, I see uh, you list Platoon twice. <laughs> did I mention it? Did I, did, I, did I say it twice or just list it twice? No, you just listed it twice, which is appropriate. Oh, well, I mean, it was it was a big one. Though though it's interesting, he he kicked off his, his acting career in 86 in both Platoon and Toby Hooper's Invaders from Mars. So like one foot in both, uh, both lanes, I guess. Invaders from Mars is a uh, little scene Toby Hooper movie, but it, if I recall, it's like a an alien invasion movie, but it's sort of for kids. It's like a you know childhood adventure movie. I remember it getting the vibe. It's been a long time since I watched it, but I got this sort of for kids vibe for it. Like yeah. as a child watching it, I wasn't sure how I, how I was supposed to feel about it, and I don't know if that was intentional or if it was just miscalibrated. Um, but then again, that was also kind of a thing back in the day, right? I mean, I would I would classify Gremlins, um, even though it is often held up, I guess, as a, a classic. Uh, I think that one is tonally all over the place. Oh yeah, I, I actually, uh, I so I quite love Gremlins, but I, I absolutely agree it is tonally all over the place. 
But you know what I love, Rob? I love the fact that we're not out of generals yet. No, no, we have a lieutenant general, and it's play- <laughs> he has no name, uh, but he's played by Dick Butkus. <laughs> Dick Butkus, yes. <laughs> yep. Yep, uh, born 1942, American football legend Dick Butkus of the Bears, um, who was in Gremlins 2, by the way, along mm-hmm. with various other TV shows. I think he tends to sort of play himself, if not actually play himself. Is this the general who, in the hospital scenes, was just, like, eating a big plate of buffalo wings? Uh, I don't remember <laughs> him at all, but that sounds right. That sounds appro- like appropriate use of the actor Dick Buckus. So Brian and Peggy are on fire, and he's like, I need more blue cheese. (laughs) All right, we're almost done with the cast here, but we have just a few essentially cameos to point out here. Uh Uh, The first of all, uh, we have John Landis, uh, the director, who has a cameo as a radio technician who catches on fire. John Landis, who who directed like American Werewolf in London and stuff. Uh, Yeah, so he he spits fire out of his mouth uh, because Brad Dourif calls him on the phone and gets mad. Yeah. Though he's not even mad at Landis's character, he's mad at another character. So Landis, right, yeah. Landis's uh, cameo character here is just the, in the wrong place at the wrong time. Caught in the crossfire. Mm. This is also a Dick Warlock picture, by the way. Gotta love Dick Warlock. Every time I see his name in the credits, I get excited. Yeah, he uh, he plays Mr. Fitzpatrick in this. I'm not sure who that is, but basically no. he's a stunt player. Um and uh, you you do see him show up in films of the day uh, of of that period, and it's generally just notable because he has just such a fun name. Yeah, he was also part of the extended uh, Carpenter Halloverse. He was in Halloween Two. I th- he may well have played Michael Myers in Halloween Two. Mm. Um, I might be remembering that wrong, but he's definitely in Halloween Three, in which he plays a an ancient druid robot assassin. Hmm. Now, this is interesting because uh, the, the next cameo is another director like mm-hmm. like Landis. But this director's cameo serves as this uh, director's only acting credit. Uh, and this is the director, Andre de Toth, um, who has a this cameo playing Dr. V- uh, Vandenmeer in this, uh, what was supposed to, I think he's supposed to be a European or a German scientist of some sort that shows up in the early stages of the picture. Um uh, but he has he has several lines like it's not just a walk on walk off situation. He has some really fun lines in this picture. Oh, uh, he but, has the most ludicrous monologue in the film. Yeah, and he was yeah he was not an actor. He was primarily a writer director. He was he was born in in Hungary. Um, he's he he directed various pictures, including 1953's House of Wax, starring Vincent Price. One thing I read about this was that, so this was a very prominent 3D movie, uh, but uh, I believe it's the case that he actually couldn't see, he couldn't perceive 3D films because he was missing one of his eyes. Right. He he, he wore an eye patch. Like, he wears an eye patch yeah. in this picture, and you if you didn't know anything about him, you might assume that's just part of the character, but uh, no, that, that was, he really wore one. Um he was uh, he was also a writer. He wrote the story that uh, 1950s The Gunfighter starring Gregory Peck was based on. And he served as second unit director on 78 Superman, 1965's Thunderball, and 1962's Lawrence of Arabia. Wow. Um, as far as music goes, uh, Graham Ravel uh, did the, the music, a uh, composer here, born 1955. An established film score composer who... I don't think I recognized his name, but I've seen plenty of pictures that he scored. Um, we include... briefly discussed him on the episode for Ghost in the Machine. 
That's right. Yeah, that was one. 1993's Ghost in the Machine. I cannot remember what we even said about the score for Ghost in the Machine, if it was good or bad or just kind of, you know. I I think you were mostly unimpressed. I think you were like, uh, I would have liked it Cynthia. Yeah, that's, well, that's generally, that's often my note on, on things. and. Yeah, that's that's basically the same here. Though he he worked on films like The Crow, The Chronicles of Riddick, mm-hmm. uh, which is a picture I really enjoy, but I also don't remember its um, its music at all. So not that you obviously need to notice the music so much in a motion picture. I guess there's an argument to be made for the music doing its job and not standing out too much. But uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. For me, I, I like it to stand out. The score that plays over the opening credits has a, a moment in it that reminds me of a moment from the score in Aliens. There's sort of a two-beat pulse that's like dun, dun, skittering. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, I'll mention one more person involved in this, and that's because it has a lot. this picture has a lot of fire special effects in it, mm-hmm. and it's often pinpointed as being one of the more notable things about the picture. Michael Weldon in the Psychotronic Video Guide praises the fire effects. So it appears to be, there was a whole crew here, but it appears to be uh, uh, in large part the work of Stephen David Brooks, who is optical and visual effects supervisor and second unit director on this film. And he went on to write uh, Toby Hooper's adaptation of Stephen King's The Mangler. Hmm, Okay. I've never seen that one, but that is about a uh, killer industrial laundry machine, I think. Yes. Yeah, it has. Okay. I think it has Robert England in it. And I think that one is, is Stephen King approved. It it gets kind of weird when you get into like which adaptation Stephen King likes and doesn't like. And mm-hmm. granted, it's totally his his place to to make those judgments. Um, you know, not 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 saying it isn't, but sometimes it can feel a little uneven on yeah, our side. It doesn't really correlate to how good the movies are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like sometimes I think it's like to what degree he had input in it and you know, something it's it, it's it also comes back to what we we're talking about with, with Dora earlier. When you're on the inside of something your your perspective is different. So the thing that is in, in, important to them may not actually come through to your experience of it, but it was important to their initial creation or their performance in the picture. Yeah. Oh, but I got to say, so this was made in 1990. The effects budget doesn't appear to have been the, the greatest of all time. Uh, but I'd say the effects are pretty strong. Like they are, even if they don't necessarily always look realistic, they are effective for the, the staginess of the story. Yeah. I, one thing I'd forgotten about this picture is, was just how, terrifying some of the 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 fire effects are yeah um like they they feel dangerous they feel um unsafe i mean not in a sense where i'm i'm second guessing the work of the stunt people but just in like within the context of the movie fire feels like a dangerous thing and a lot of times you can in in pictures you get so used to seeing like a a a burn a burning man uh, effect uh, a fire suit effect you know Mm -hmm. a man on fire and at times if you're not familiar with what is involved in that if you don't become like a connoisseur of the man on fire uh, you can forget like how impressive that stunt is how dangerous that stunt is and um and to a certain extent you can lose respect for just how dangerous fire itself is sure and then, of course, Brad Dorff is often screaming and, and fully emoting in these fire scenes, which I think adds to the effect. Right. That actually may be the most blood-curdling aspect of it, <laughs> more so than the visual effects. Mm-hmm. It's just uh, yeah. Brad Dorff crossing the red line. Yeah.
All right. Well, I guess it's high time to get into the, the, the plot on this one. All right. Well, in keeping with some of the recent episodes, I don't think we're going to do like a scene by scene of the entire movie. But uh, but I think it does help to uh, look a little bit more closely at the beginning, which is one of the strongest parts of the film. So we, yeah. we open in the 50s with some nuclear testing. Yeah, it has an extended prologue. <laughs> it takes, opens up in 1955, Nevada desert, hydrogen bomb testing site. And we have the, the, the classic song, I Don't Want to Set the World on Fire by the Ink Spots, a 1941 hit playing in the background, which is a bit on the nose, but also just perfect. Uh, yeah. This would, of course, the same song would be utilized in a very similar way much later by uh, the the Fallout games. I think oh. in uh, the commercials or opening videos for for, for one of those games. Uh, so I I don't know if this actually in, uh, inspired them or if it's just pure coincidence, but uh, it's it's well used in this picture. I was wondering the exact same thing whether this movie might have somehow inspired the cheeky Atomic Age parody style of the Fallout games. Yeah, yeah, because we see some of that here. Like, they're establishing 55 and a certain to a certain extent, you know, this I, idealized version of what the 50s were like. We have these, these two lovebirds, Brian and Peggy Bell. They've been injected with a special serum, serum. They're very much in love. Generals and German scientists are watching on. They're somehow connected to this... Um, atomic detonation that's about to happen. They're in some sort of a bunker, and yeah. we see that this is the Samson Project. Yeah, this is the Samson Project. So they're like in a fallout shelter underneath this this bomb test range. And, uh, and one thing that was funny here was they have to inject themselves with some kind of serum right before the bomb goes off while they're strapped mm -hmm. to these chairs, and you see them just, like, jam in just a stabbing motion with the needles into their own arms. <laughs> yeah, there are multiple scenes with um, injection. This this is not a good film for people who have needle phobias. Oh, uh, no. <laughs> Especially because some of the needles are full of glowing green goop. Yeah. Well, the green, the green glow is how you know it works. Right. Uh, another thing I wanted to mention, though, which is I, I already alluded to the v sort of wildly varying visual qualities of this film. Some things in it look really good and some things in it look very cheap. And so some of the things in the early part of the movie, which overall the, the, the beginning, I think, is very effective and funny and, and works well. Uh, but it, it instantly also looks like a movie made in 1990. And I was wondering, like, what is that quality that so many movies, even a lot of good movies of the early 90s, have this look? It's almost kind mm. of a TV-style cinematography. Yeah. Uh, I, I would compare it to some of the kind of Velveeta sets and camera behavior that we saw in those Charles Band movies. Yeah, 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 it certainly does. Um, that, But at the same time, they have this... Uh, atomic age news short uh that that plays oh, in this portion of the film where they killer. Yeah. yeah where they create this uh this kind of retro news vibe you know like like today we have Brian and Peggy involved in this uh, you know with the you know the, the nice overdone narration uh -huh. and it's it, like starship the, troopers they're doing yeah, their yeah. part yeah yeah it's like you know military propaganda and it's really well done it 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 feels more or less authentic to the the 50s and less 1990 but okay, there's a nuclear test, a bomb goes off, they've injected themselves with the serum, and, and Brian and Peggy survive. And then they find out, uh-oh, after, after this test, they're going to have a son. 
Uh, so we we cut to them in the hospital with their uh, with their newborn baby, and Brian brings in a plastic merry-go-round as a gift mm-hmm. for the child, uh, yeah. and and a little note that says like "To my son," and then it says "For my son on the day of his birth, may your life always be a merry-go-round." And as he's like handing this to his, his wife, Brian's like, "Isn't it amazing what they're doing with plastic these days?" <laughs> it's a strange comment, I thought. <laughs> Uh, but it's got doctors in the hospital, like running a Geiger counter over the baby. Obviously, they think you know something's up. I guess with all of the the, the anti radiation serum that these people have been taking, um, and they're running a Geiger counter over the baby, and they're like, "Wow, normal as can be." But they note that there is a perfectly circular birthmark on the back of the baby's hand, mm. and this will uh, come into play as the movie uh, goes later on. Uh, but so anyway, we're seeing the the parents and and their baby interact. Baby Baby Duraf is is visiting with his mom, and then uh oh, the nurse comes to take the baby away, and then something happens. This is like the we get the inciting childhood trauma scene that you have to have in so many movies these days. So you know, Bruce Wayne's parents they're murdered with a gun in Crime Alley, and in this movie, Brad Duraf's parents are murdered by fire uh, by a pyrokinetic baby. I will say, though, that this is what it feels like the first time your child cries uncontrollably, though. It feels like, yeah. like everybody's on fire. Yeah. So in a sense, this, uh, this scene uh, works really well. Well, wait, actually, no, now, now that I step back, I have a question. Because here's one of the things that maybe you can set me right on that I didn't understand about the movie. The, the mechanics of how people were getting set on fire was unclear to me. Because at first I thought it was, oh, no, the baby's upset – the baby is crying, and because the baby's upset, the baby uses its pyrokinesis powers to set its parents on fire. But also there's stuff about how people just naturally spontaneously combust, and that the serum that the parents were taking might have made that happen to them. So could it be that actually the baby Brad Dourif didn't do it, and they just spontaneously combusted because they had taken the injections? Um, I guess it's possible. Yeah. Um, I don't know. The way I read it was that it's very much the baby, but okay. it's, but it's, but it's like, if you have some sort of like, you know, firepower that mm. is attached to your, um, emotional states, I mean, a, a baby is the, exactly the wrong creature to have that power, you know, I mean, right. it's, 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 it's just going to experience its emotional states at just a maximum level with, with, with no regard for the safety of anyone else in the vicinity. Um, so it would be the kind of thing where it would just, you know, catch everybody on fire. Um, so, I, I mean, to a certain extent, I feel like this, the, the film's extended metaphor of emotional outbursts as a fire and, um, uh, you know, and, and the idea that when we're engaging emotionally, you know, we're having an impact on other people, either vis- visibly uh, present or, you know, even over the telephone. Mm. Uh, I think it, to a certain extent, makes sense. But I also realize I may be reading too much into it. Sure. Uh, so we're in a shadowy room now where the, this this burning has happened. But Brian and Peggy have burned up and they're just like charcoal bodies now. And you've got a, a circle of top brass and these and these skunkworks dudes all chatting. They're standing around chattering about the flame child. They're saying, like, it's unbelievable. All the moisture is gone, even the marrow. And then another one says, it would take a temperature of 6,000 degrees centigrade to do something like this. It's the cleanest kill I ever saw. 
And that line gets repeated in the movie, and I don't understand because it doesn't look clean at all. It looks like a total mess. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a weird it's a weird critique uh, to to have of the whole scenario. Boy, that's a clean kill. But then again, we're not part of the military industrial complex, so maybe 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 within that realm, uh, it makes more sense to say this. I guess. But then, so they're standing around doing this, but then the best possible thing happens. Andre de Toth comes in. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, they introduce him as Dr. Vandermeer. He just comes kind of creeping into the room, delivering this amazing monologue. He starts off saying, was there any plastic in the area? This would affect it. And they were like, yes, it all melted. And uh, they, they say, how would you know? And they say, well, this is Dr. Vandermeer. You know, like, obviously, that's how he knows. Mm-hmm. He's Dr. Vandermeer. Yeah, and he has this wonderful line, one of my favorites, where he says, the bodies burn from the inside with fury and the sound, the sound like angels scream. <laughs> is, is like he typing it up in his report like that? Is that what it, when they declassify these documents from, I don't know, whatever kind of program, DARPA or whatever this is, it, it is, is he, that how he's talking in them? I guess so. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's not the most unnatural thing I've heard in a movie this year, though, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's but I, I like it. I like it. So he says, uh, we we get this amazing monologue. He says, the plastic melts. Everything else remains with little or no damage. Bed covers, clothing, articles made of cotton are particularly invulnerable. The human body you see is the most complex electrically sparked combustion engine we know of. It is difficult for us to comprehend spontaneous combustion. We would not have the same reaction to a radio catching fire. SCH, and he says SCH several times, SCH is a naturally occurring phenomenon, but the odds of it striking any particular individual are millions to one. I believe the complex series of vaccines your subjects were given, combined with radiation from the blast, dramatically reduced those odds to one to one. He's absolutely uh, certain on this. Yes, yeah, so it's just a hundred percent chance you will spontaneously combust. Which the way he's introducing it here, it's it, the the pseudoscience of the movie is that like the body's natural tendency is towards spontaneous combustion, and if you don't always have some kind of process going on inside that prevents you from catching on fire, it, it's just going to happen. And so yeah. these injections to pr- to protect them from radiation. Uh, suddenly changed all that. They got away with the body's natural defenses. Oh, but it's funny. After all this, one of the one of the skunk buddies standing around the bed, he just goes like, "Yes," <laughs> and then Doctor Vandermeer says, "Oh, you've got this line here." Oh, the fire from heaven is certainly here today. What does it mean? I I don't know. Uh, but so he and then he gets back on the acronym again. He's like so excited. He says S H C. Uh, and then he starts stabbing at one of the charcoal heads with a fountain pen, and he kind of mm-hmm. digs around in there a bit, and then pulls out a skull, which I might add is really tiny, even though it is supposed to belong to an adult, and it's obviously like a toy skull of some kind. And he says, like, he's got this big, you know, lotto ticket winner smile, and he says, spontaneous human combustion! <laughs> Yeah, the, the size of the skull freaked me out when uh, when I watched this, both times, I think, mm-hmm. because it's like the baby may have burned the people up, and then he's like pulling a baby skull out of the like the mother's remains. It's like it's it's very weird, and I it takes took me a little while to figure out both times that 
oh, it's just supposed to be a normal human-sized skull. It's, it's just, just too small. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then meanwhile, you cut to the flame child himself. He's alone in a hospital bassinet, crying into the darkness. You feel for this child, but we immediately get one of those fade-to-adulthood transitions. And this flame child is now a grown man, complete with... They show you his circular birthmark on the back of his hand, so you know it's him. And he has grown up to be Brad Dourif, and he's auditioning to play in a Shakespeare show. And this is this is a wonderful scene for, for several reasons. First of all, you have you have Brad Dourif, who is who's a great actor, mm-hmm. playing a guy who is a, maybe an okay actor, right? Like he's, or at least a guy who's like doing a read of a script. Uh, mm. So it's always kind of interesting when you see that, like some, like a, a, a really talented actor playing a scene where they are, they're playing an actor who is not fully comfortable with the material yet. And also kind of like breaking up halfway through it and laughing. Uh, it's also a very humanizing scene. Like mm-hmm. this film more than a lot of horror pictures and thriller pictures I've seen, it it introduced our protagonist, and I instantly care about him. Like I'm instantly invested. Like this guy seems all right. He seems normal. Look at all this 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 fun and life in him. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I think we're supposed to understand that he is a bad actor, not just not as great as Brad Dourif. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, but you're you're probably right. I think he's supposed to be a, a teacher, right? At this yeah. uh, this college. Yeah, I think so. They don't say what he teaches, or if they do, I missed it. Is he the theater teacher, or is he just he's no, just going to be no, in the play? No, 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 no. Okay. <laughs> but so here's a question I had: at this audition, there are five characters in the scene, and every single one of them is wearing an anti-nuclear armband, which is so it's an armband that's like a no smoking sign, but with the radiation symbol instead of the the cigarette. Mm-hmm. So is this a gathering of like the anti-nuclear repertory company? Why is this an anti-nuclear theater troupe? I mean, I guess it's just supposed to be the vibe on campus. I don't know. Uh, okay. I'm, I know Toby Hooper taught at one point, um, mm-hmm. what, uh, in Austin, I think. So I don't know if he's like pulling in some of that. I also had the feeling throughout the film, especially I think from this point on, that this picture was trying to say something uh, about nuclear energy was trying to be uh, to 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 make a statement like an anti nuke statement in ways that never completely worked and maybe handicapped the script at times. Oh yeah, yeah. I think this is supposed to be an anti nuclear movie, uh, and not just against nuclear weapons, which mm-hmm. you know is a very understandable point of view. It's also clearly against nuclear power as right. an energy source, uh, which makes me think, oh, could, this movie could have got some funding from big coal. Um, but he, he's, uh, so he's bad at acting and he fails the audition and, oh, and every, like everybody associated with the nuclear power plant in this movie is evil. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but he's bad at acting. He fails the audition. His girlfriend tells him he's bad. This is, this is Lisa. Uh, at some point he asks her about, I think his astrological charts and she's got some info for him. I think she also has pills for him that she gives him. Right, right. Uh, She's really into astrology, and he doesn't completely take it seriously. But they, they, they have a great chemistry. These two, like this, is thinking back to Dora's quote that we read earlier. I, I, I wish this had stuck to the love story because they had these two had some nice chemistry together, and and I'm instantly invested. I want them to succeed and overcome whatever you know kind of fire baby stuff is happening in the background. So 
So to explain the situation of the film, like what's generally going on, I think we should probably try to describe this scene at the uh, at the restaurant and then <laughs> the following the like the outside the limo thing, uh, because th- this is where you sort of figure out the relationships between the characters. So, Sam, correct me if I get anything wrong here. Sam okay. has an ex-wife named Rachel, whose grandfather, uh, Lou Olander, and that's the, the prince character from the beginning, is always asking about him, always asking about his headaches and his migraines. But also, Lou Olander uh, raised Sam, is that right? Yeah, he's some sort of father figure yeah okay. he's i don't know i don't recall to what degree he was involved in raising him but he is he seems to be the most important male figure in sam's life okay but it was hard to figure that out so i think he was basically sam's um yeah some kind of mentor figure or, or father figure to him and he's and he's the grandfather of sam's ex-wife uh, but then when Sam gets to the restaurant, uh, first of all, they, they try, they stick him with the bill. Uh, his, his ex-wife <laughs> is like, I have to leave. You'll pick up the tab. Um, and then Sam follows her outside. She gets in a limo with the grandfather, with Lou. And then um, they see a news story on a TV that's playing in the limo that talks about this woman named Amy who had died the previous night. She has some association with the nuclear power plant. And uh, she had died the previous night after an incident resulting from smoking in bed. And then uh, we find out and then he's like, what? But I just had a heated argument with her the previous night. So it's really kind of telegraphing. Yeah. (laughs) Um, uh, But then he he gets stuck with the check after they leave and he's very angry about this. And then his finger catches fire. Yes. uh, And uh, I I should add, it's it's pretty effective, I thought, because it's not just like a, like a, you know, like, oh, my finger's on fire. Like, it's shocking. It's painful. There's this, it's kind of like his, his, the tip of his finger becomes phosphorus for a second. Yeah. Dorif's all in. And it's like, yeah, it's like a a quick match, you know, foosh. So here, from here, he goes to his doctor's office and we find out that his doctor is forgetful and incompetent. It doesn't really pay attention, asks him the same questions over and over again. He says that he tried, he says that the doctor told him he needed to get his tonsils removed, but he didn't have tonsils anymore because they'd already been removed. Um, and so he electrically shocks the doctor apparently by accident while shaking his hand, which and, they just attribute to, to static electricity. Yeah, and I think they're setting up a, a some recurring themes that will be happening throughout the rest of the plot, which is that uh, Sam first of all keeps having little incidents in which like his fingers or parts of his body catch on fire, or he's in the vicinity of fire, like he lights a match or something and it blazes up into an inferno. And then on the other hand, there are repeatedly stories about somebody who Sam had a conflict with later turns up burned to death in their home. Right. And this this first incident, of, we don't see it, but, but right. eventually we're seeing these sequences where, yeah, they're, they're graphically burned alive and then he learns about it after the fact. Now, I don't know exactly how this connects to the concept of spontaneous combustion, because here it seems like he's pyrokinetically doing this to people unconsciously, like he's not trying to, but it's a result of him getting mad at people, I guess. Um, and and yet he's driving around in his car listening to like the radio that's talking about the, these spontaneous combustion conspiracies. Yeah, like if if it was to, if this took place today, he would be listening to conspiracy podcasts nonstop yeah. about things like spontaneous human combustion. But it's on the radio, which is I want to know what radio station that is. But also, 
so the the thing they're talking about is like they don't want you to know about spontaneous human combustion. You're not supposed to talk about it. If you know about it, they'll shut you up. But this is one of those conspiracy theories where like it doesn't even pass the uh uh okay as if plausibility test. Like what mm-hmm. shadowy power would be trying to contain the secret of spontaneous combustion? Kui Bono. Right. You know, who's benefiting yeah. from keeping this a secret? Is this making somebody money or <laughs> I don't know. I guess that if I'm being generous, I would say that. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, can't, I have nothing. <laughs> no, it reminds me of like the people. This is one I've actually heard before, like the people who say like uh, flat earthers who say, oh, the government mm-hmm. wants you to think that the earth is round. And it's like, oh, wow. You know, if they can just convince us the earth is round, then they'll really what i i don't know then yeah. they'll really yeah, no, no, be powerful <laughs> yeah i mean i don't part of it i guess could be the film's trying to play into the idea that he is like there is there is legitimate paranoia building but i guess in anytime you're crafting a fiction where you you want there to be paranoia but also a legitimate conspiracy going on at the same time yeah. it's kind of a difficult thing to balance especially for the viewer like where are we what are we supposed to where are we supposed to cut it off you know Right. Well, this movie is very much in the spirit of the Nirvana song, you know, just because you're paranoid don't mean they're not after you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, he quickly becomes he growing paranoia throughout the picture, growing realization that people are burning up, that he's had, um, you know, emotional flare-ups about. And, uh, and everything just escalates. And Doris' character, Sam, at the center of this, um, is just having an increasingly difficult time holding it together. Mm-hmm. And I like that this movie does uh, sort of emphasize the role of media here. I mean, this is 1990, but it, it doesn't seem coincidental that like literally every piece of TV or radio media he consumes is either about spontaneous combustion, paranormal stuff, or an evil nuclear power plant. Mm, yeah, yeah. It's kind of ahead of its time in this picture then. It's, it's, it's kind of forecasting the social media age. But eventually he ends up like trying to call into this radio show because Lisa wants him to. Lisa's like, oh, I know this guy who's got a radio show, Dr. Persons. He is a radio call-in psychic psychiatrist. Did I get that right? Yeah, I believe so. Okay, and she she has him call in because she specifies. She's like, you can call in. I'm a supporter. I donated $75, which, uh, (laughs) you know, you have to give. You have to give. Otherwise, the whole thing goes dark. But he calls in on this uh, amazing, like, light-up neon phone. Uh, yeah, it's pink, I believe. Like, a pink yeah. neon phone. It's a dream which is a phone. Yeah. It's an odd choice because it really dominates the whole scene. Now, this radio host is like, uh, yep, I can tell you got some, you got some evil spirits in you or something. Uh, but he, he, wants, he really wants to talk to the guy, uh, and he gets cut off somehow. And this is how I think he, he accidentally sets John Landis on fire. What, what is yeah. it that happens here? Uh, he's like trying to call back and Landis, his character, uh, answers the phone. He's like, he can't talk to you. He's on the air or something. And then like Landis is just horrifically on fire. Like it's, a, yeah. it's an intense fire scene. Yeah. He literally breathes fire like a dragon. It shoots out of his mouth. Well, yeah. Well, that part is, is ludicrous. But then yeah. <laughs> but then after that, there's a scene where he's just it's like a, a man on fire in the room, like bashing into the walls and into the glass. Uh-huh. And that's rather frightful, especially since I think there's no sound in that scene. It makes it even more disturbing for some reason. Now, from here, there's sort of a, a progressing revelation of the fact that 
every single person in Sam's life is like a plant by this conspiracy that he really Mm -hmm. doesn't have any genuine relationships. Like he finds out that Lisa, his girlfriend is a plant. She was like put in service as his girlfriend by Lou Olander to like, I guess, monitor him and give him these pills, these homeopathic pills he's been taking. So there's clearly a conspiracy afoot and it encompasses every single aspect of Sam's life. Right. Um, and, and I would say like one of the, the, the flaws in, the, in the, the final portions of the film is that in a conspiracy film, this conspiracy story, I feel like there should be a, an impression of narrowing as you reach the end. You know, the yeah. idea that like the, para, the paranoid fantasies are real, the conspiracy is real, and therefore everything should take on this simpler form, at least to the mind of, of the individual at the center of everything. And instead, it, I mean, it, things do streamline a little bit, but they're still kind of all over the place. You still don't know who is our central uh, um, adversary for the longest. Yeah, that's right. And and the last third of the movie really turns into a a spiral into chaos, a kind of, you know, a destructive spiral thing where he just, uh, Brad Dourif just keeps like getting enraged by things and setting people and things on fire and setting himself on fire. Like it's also really hurting him. Like he'll get mad about something and, and fire shoots out of his arm and there's like blood squirting everywhere and sparks coming out of his face. And uh, like, it's, it's rough on him too. Yeah, and I think that's that's something I do like about the picture is that the fire starter in this is not untarnished by the flame, and and something about that works really well with the the sort of loose metaphor of um, of unchecked emotions. You know, the idea mm-hmm. that like all this is not just a matter of you hurting everyone else around you and having no control. You're also hurting yourself. You're destroying yourself in the process. Yeah, and that it can't be harnessed. He's not like. Uh... He's not like the X-Man guy, who, mm-hmm. you know, X-Men guy who's got the firepower, who can just like direct it, you know, like Magneto does. It's more like an uncontrolled outburst that just harms everything in its path. Yeah. So the, the pyro emotional breakdown here really begins about an hour into the picture. And yeah, this is where I think the wheels come off quite a bit. Um, mm-hmm. Dorof carries his character remarkably well with these pivots, and he makes this transition as perhaps as believable as, as humanly possible for an actor, but it's still a rough transition because up until now, I feel like we've been rooting for him. You know, he, Dorif presents a, a, a sympathetic character for the most part, though one who is really struggling. And then when the character goes off the rails, it's uncertain, like, who we should be pulling for here. It's also uncertain whose side Lisa is on. Like, there there's certainly been pictures that I've seen, stories that I've, I've, I've read where you have the character you're rooting for and then they become the villain and there's somebody else who you're hoping they don't hurt. Um, right. But, they, but I feel like Lisa, for the most part, fills that, that, that role. But you're also unsure, is she in on it? Is she part of the conspiracy or not? Is she, is she an innocent or, or is she part of it? Well, we do. I mean, so we know she's a plant like she was put in his life in order, right. for, you know, to help manipulate him in this way. But you also get the feeling that she didn't understand the full extent of what was going on and that she has grown to truly love him, I think. Yeah. So it, it gets a little muddy there. But, but you know, one of the yeah. interesting things was I watched Wise Blood after this. OK. And Wise Blood has a similar trajectory really? uh, with uh, with a Hazel character because – I mean, you don't. Okay, Hazel is is not as as likable a character as Sam. Hazel is um uh-huh. is is an intense and, and in many ways awful character who is obsessed with uh, with with various things. But you still are on some level rooting for him until he goes off the the rails 
and murder somebody. So uh, in a way, I guess it, it, you know, there's a similar trajectory for both characters. Uh, but with, with Sam, uh, you really do care about him early on in the picture. So it makes that pivot all the worse. I did enjoy so I, I thought that the ending of this movie was somewhat anticlimactic, though I also in a at least an ironic way, uh enjoyed the uh the, the sort of Bond villain speech that uh Lou Olander gives at the end. Yeah, the basic idea is is this whole thing with the Samson project, with uh uh with the two uh, individuals who went into it and they ultimately had this child. This was always the plan to produce a a fire baby, allow that fire baby to grow up and harness the power of fire baby, control fire baby and use those fire baby powers as a weapon of some sort. Right. He says you are America's atomic man, you know, like the mm-hmm. idea, like you're the next uh atomic weapon. Yeah. But I don't know. I mean, like, even if you're just looking at this from a like, what's the most effective weapon to destroy people with? He seems less useful than atomic weapons. And this makes me feel like this is a case where perhaps the aspirations of this of of the the, the writers here to say something about nuclear power and nuclear weaponry that perhaps it got in the way of of crafting a better trajectory for the character. Because I ultimately feel like it would have been better if we had maybe a slightly more uplifting ending where maybe he becomes kind of the atomic man and he saves the day or he becomes like a you know angel of pure light and transcends or something but i kind of get the sense like they i can imagine a situation in the the, the writing room or the you know the writing table where it's toby hooper and, and goldberg there and i imagine them saying well like no 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 that's not what we want to say about about nuclear power that's not what we believe about nuclear power so we're we're not going to do that with the character Maybe I'm totally off, but that's I, I couldn't help but think about that watching this. Ultimately, though, I don't n- really know if the anti-nuclear thing is like a is like a genuine sentiment of the filmmakers and something they're trying to to communicate to the audience, or if it's more of a plot device. True, it's yeah, or if it's just kind of like it was on their mind, so it ends up filling up the background. So yeah. it's it's, yeah. it's 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 kind of like if there's Pepsi in the background a lot of the times it doesn't mean the picture is trying to say something about Pepsi Cola versus Coca-Cola. But there's another confrontation after the confrontation with uh with Lou Olander where he he does the thing where he like melts into a puddle of light and then turns into a hand made of light and reaches out and grabs fire off of Lisa to save her. Like he says I can take your fire and he takes it and then he's yeah. gone. Yeah. That and that that scene was weird and kind of confusing. Uh, the, I like the yeah. idea. I can see where it would have worked really well on paper, you know. And even the words sound kind of nice. I can take your fire for you, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, at, at that point in the in the film, everything's going off the rails, so it's it's it doesn't make as much of an impact. But it's kind of a, a fire apotheosis at the end. And, but instead of coming up, going up and becoming a star or a constellation in the sky. His apotheosis is melting into a puddle of light and becoming one with the radiation, the sparks, and the fire at the center of the earth. Well, you put it like that, it sounds pretty beautiful. Yeah. In the actual picture, it's not really beautiful. <laughs> Though there is, I do enjoy the sequence earlier uh, towards the end where he's uh, he's walking into the mansion there to confront Lou, and there's all this blue light, and um, and Brad Dorf's character Sam is like is he smoking like his whole body is kind of smoldering a little bit. Uh, yeah. I, I did really like that. I thought that looked pretty cool. I think I'm going to stand by what I said earlier. Ultimately, I think this movie is pretty much incoherent, and yet it, it's absolutely a blast. I mean, uh, Toby Hooper knows how to make a fun movie that is not boring, uh, and and Brad Dourif is tremendous. <laughs> uh, yeah, I I definitely agree that Brad Brad Dourif is great in this. Um, though, 
it, it, I, I don't know. I, if you've never seen Brad Dorff in a film, I don't know where to even tell people to start. The thing is, you probably have seen Brad Dorff in a film. He's just not yeah. the kind of actor that you can, um, you can avoid seeing. He's shown up in something, and he's probably, he was probably memorable in it. All right, you, you're probably wondering, well, where can I watch Spontaneous Combustion? Well, uh, it's available on DVD and Blu-ray from Sunset Films. Sometimes you'll find it on streaming as well. Um, and if you happen to live in Atlanta, you can go to Atlanta's only video store, Videodrome. They have a copy of it, I believe, on DVD. Ah. Rent it, but do not, don't set it ablaze with your, um, with your psychic powers uh, oh, whilst yeah. holding it. Be careful with the case. They say plastic can make that happen. Yeah, yeah. And be careful calling in to Videodrome about it because you can you know, cause fire that way. I don't know. It might even be dangerous to listen to this podcast with those powers because you could make us burst into flames right here. Please don't. All right. We're going to go ahead and close it out there. Uh, but we'd love to hear from you. I'd love to know what are your favorite Brad Dorif roles. He's been in so much. Uh, and there's so much I haven't seen and we'll probably never have the opportunity to see. So if there's something, if there's a particular gem uh, to be found in uh, in another uh, cinematic husk out there, if there's a, if there's some 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 really prime Brad Dorif that's worth enduring uh, the flaws in another picture for, uh, let us know about it. I would I would I would like to be enlightened. Please light our fire. <laughs> All right. Uh, if you want to listen to Weird House Cinema, it publishes every Friday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We're primarily a science podcast, and we put out episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Uh, we also do a short-form artifact on Wednesdays and listener mail on Mondays with a rerun on the weekend. And, hey, if you want to go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com, that'll shoot you to the iHeart page for our show. You'll find all the episodes there. There's a store button there. And if you want to go there, you can buy some merch with some of our logos on it, including the Weird House Cinema logo. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 